The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. As always, any kind of help in spreading the word is always appreciated. If you can rate Lead Lag Live on Spotify, Apple, all those various places, that's a big plus. With all that said, my name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. As joining me for the hour is uh, the man who, on his birth certificate, his first name is Green and last name is Stats. He wants to be a little bit on the honest side, but we're going to uh, try and prove that his uh, his name is not exactly that. But uh, Green Stats, for those who are not familiar with you, to the extent that you're comfortable with the caveat that you want to be anonymous here, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved and interested in the green space and the ag space? And what are you doing now? So I didn't do a traditional, let me, let me step back one second. So I didn't come from the grain industry originally, right? I kind of fell into it. And I actually started off my, my career at Wall Street, right? I used to be a financial futures trader. And then right around like the Great Recession, I kind of switched my gears and I decided to go down the grain route, right? So that being said, I went into the grain industry, not coming from a grain background, which is not your typical kind of uh, segue into the markets, right? So I started off my career in commodities very young, and I continued down this path of grain for, you know, 10 to 15 years. And since then, I'm still trading. I'm still doing things. Like I built a website with a few other individuals called grainstats.com. We released a blog recently kind of explaining agricultural markets to the regular Joes, Joe Schmoes of the world, right? Kind of keeping it easy for anybody to read without getting into like the really, really intricate details. Because as you and I know, right, explaining commodities is an extremely daunting task. And, you know, for your average person, I mean, they don't understand this stuff. So we try to make it easy. We run a community. We got about 800 plus subscribers right now on Telegram. We're really heavy on social media just trying to build this community and just get a lot of interesting people on board. I mean, there's a lot of people in the grain industry that are not online. They're, you know, this industry in general it's kind of backwards when it comes down to digitization. So we're, we're really happy to kind of help that. And, you know, just as myself, right, as I used to be more of a professional trader at one of these ABCD type companies, I wish I had these tools and we've built these tools and we're not charging an arm and a leg for it. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I really enjoy it. You know, this, these markets have been absolutely crazy the past few years, as you and I but before that, we had like a five-year bear market in grain. So it's really nice to see new blood into these markets and new interest. And I just hope to be there with you all. Okay, so you mentioned 
that you, you consider maybe unusual or that you thought other people would think is unusual that you're involved in the green space on the commodity trading side. Talk through to the audience how green in generally trades differently compared to other commodities. What are some of the unique aspects to green as opposed to other ag plays? Yeah, so that's a great question. So really it comes down to, you have to think about it this way, is that grain in general is pretty much harvested one time per year, maybe two times if you're in Brazil, right? And it's traded, you know, in three basically or four major areas where it's grown, right? So you have North America, you have South America, you have, you know, Europe in the Black Sea, you have parts of South Africa and then Australia, right? And those are all the suppliers, right? And usually you just have one crop per year. And essentially everywhere else is an importer. So all that being said, you have to monitor all these different regions and understand, you know, the demand and trade flows, as well as the political aspects, right? Like, hey, can I buy from Russia? Can I buy wheat from Russia right now? Absolutely not if you're in the Western United States, right? Or trade with Russian entities, right? So really you kind of build out this whole world macro kind of view, but every single year you run into the same obstacles, right? Are we going to have a crop? Is it going to get planted on time? Is there going to be a freeze? Is there going to be a flood? And as soon as that crop is harvested, that's all you have, right? You, you can't just, you know, you can't be like the Fed and just go print more corn. It's not possible, right? And that being said, right, it's like a big meme right now, right? What's going on with the egg market? I mean, you kind of put it out there. Everybody's been sharing memes this whole week. But, you know, eggs are a perfect example, right? We had this huge avian flu that kind of knocked out 5 to 10% of the, the flock in the United States, right? which caused egg prices to go to like 5 to $8, you know, maybe even $10 a carton right now. And that being said, right, it goes back to the same thing. It's like supply and demand, depending how you stretch it out, it all depends on when the stuff is harvested, produced, right? But if you kill a chicken, when are you going to get the next chicken, right? You harvest wheat, it might be a whole year before you harvest it again. So that's kind of the unique aspect when it comes down to commodities. And it's not just grain, right? You know, you have the similar kind of aspects in the natural gas markets and other energy markets, right? But at least with those, you have continuous production, right? You can go get an oil head, extract out all the oil, right? But it's every day that it's coming out. With wheat, you need know, plant it in Kansas, you harvest it in the summer, and then you're not going to get that crop again until the next summer. So it's a little bit different than other agriculture or other commodities. And you mentioned the sort of lack of digitization and sort of, you know, some backwards aspect of it to some extent relative to modern technology. Do you find that that makes it maybe more volatile a space than other areas because it's harder from the grain planting perspective to to properly model out demands using you know, fancy computers and algos? Or is there some other dynamic that makes it different from a other than once a year type of dynamic, different from other commodities? Well, you know, when I talk digitization, right, I'm talking about how basically the industry, right, is not key when it comes down to, or engage, I should say, with like the web, right? For example, like there's this huge problem when it comes down to forward selling your grain, right? There's been probably for the past 20 years, this huge push to digitization where a farmer can go in and just sell his bushels online, right? And it just never happens, right? So just that's one kind of component, right? But, you know, the grain industry in general is hasn't even had like a Web 2.0 moment, right? 
And the other side of it is all the tech companies are trying to push a Web 3.0 movement. But, you know, when it comes down to the other side, the agricultural technology, the like the, the tractors, the tractor software, all that, that is gone exponential. I mean, the stuff that's coming out of John Deere these days is is unbelievable. So we're talking two different things here. But, you know, when it comes back to just the markets themselves, we're just not there, right? Grain markets trade essentially three months out to nine months out. But most of that volume is in the first three months. And, you know, part of that's re- the reason that like, hey, a lot of these guys are hand to mouth buyers in the market, right? So they're only looking to get their demand met for the next month or two. But, you know, um, at the same time, like the farmer wants to sell cr- grain products, but he doesn't want to sell that far out because he might want to take advantage of the nearby markets, right? So it's this kind of huge bid ask spread half the time where timing is a component. Farmers are unhappy with prices. Buyers are unhappy with prices. And, you know, the, the transparency is just not there. And I think that's like a huge problem that needs to be solved this decade. But they've been trying for 20 years and they still haven't done that. How steady is the demand side of of various grains? I mean, I have to assume it's like a, a lot of other commodities, right? In the sense that most of the tail is most of the tail risk is on the kind of supply shock side of things. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. So once it's harvested, right, you know, the the tail end of it, right, like what moves the market is really just the outside markets, right, and export demand, right? Because when it comes down to the United States, for example, on corn, right, 40% of the crop is going to go into ethanol production. The rest is going to be basically split between food, the feed sector, right, cattle and hogs. And then the exports, right? And when it comes down to the feed and ethanol, those are pretty static. You know, I mean, you'll get their growth, you'll get your two to five percent bumps or decreases, right? But that's pretty much set. It's the stuff that that moves the needle the most is exports, right? And when that comes down to the world, this is not America of 30 years ago, where we were like number one in the world, you know, exporting corn and other commodities, right? A lot has changed since then, you know. You didn't have Brazil online. You didn't have Russia in the market. And we're all competing with trying to set the market on the export side. So that's what really drives these prices, right? So, for example, let's go back to what happened with Russia and Ukraine last year. Russia invades Ukraine, right? All of a sudden, the wheat market, the corn market, all the grains basically go rally, right? And people are trying to figure out, okay, U.S. has a crop. Ukraine is basically about to start planning, you know, their, their spring summer, but they also have to go through a winter wheat harvest. Russia's going through a winter wheat harvest this coming summer. But like, hey, am I going to be able to buy from Ukraine? Am I going to be able to buy from Russia? So during that few month period, right, it was so much uncertainty about getting insurance on a vessel to load Ukraine out of Ukraine or being able to trade with Russia that people just didn't. So you kind of moved on to other areas and those areas were the typical, you know, United States, Brazil, Argentina, supplying the world. So that's how 
the impact of different regional markets can end up influencing the prices back home. And that's pretty much how these markets operate on a day-to-day basis. So I often, I often talk about lumber as a leading indicator of housing. What's the equivalent of a leading indicator for, for grain? I mean, is it fertilizer prices? I've seen some interesting stats that show that fertilizer prices tend to move in advance of most major crops, which makes sense, and there's a lag time there. But what are some of the things that you pay attention to for warning signs of a change in trend? It depends, right? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's this massive drought in Argentina right now, and it's influencing soybean prices down there. It's so much that they're going to have to import soybeans from Brazil, right? Which is not common, right? You know, for exporting country to be importing what they're producing, that's not very common. So basically, right now, the theme in the market is just coming out of South America, right? And it's weird because, you know, you have a famine basically kind of <laughs> kind of occurring through this drought in Argentina. But in Brazil, it's absolutely opposite. And, you know, Brazil is about to start harvesting here in the next month and a half. And Argentina's the exact opposite. Like, they don't have a crop. Brazil's going to have a record crop. And right now, like, one of the leading indicators of the market has been soybean meal. And that's really been holding up the market, the grains right now. But those narratives shift, right? Like, I kind of posted today, right? about corn demand in the world, we've had such a horrible corn export program this year. But things are about to change, right? Because basically what happens in Brazil, they kind of shut off their corn exports and Brazil starts exporting soybeans, right? And well, Argentina also exports corn, but corn cannot be, I mean, the price that's in corn in Argentina, when it comes down to harvest, they're going to have so many problems that it's not going to be worth it for them to sell it because they can't meet their demands in the domestic market. So then, you know, you still have this Black Sea kind of thing going on right now where exports are really hard to get out of Ukraine. They've improved, but you never know what's going to happen with Russian aggression. So basically, that kind of opens up the world going back to the United States, right? Where, you know, you have the best counterparty risk. The U.S. is not going to default. We have all the great ABCD companies. We have the best credit. And you're trading in dollars with the origin of the dollar maker, you know? And in general, you're going to be able to get that product moved the fastest possible, logistically speaking, out of the United States, North American export system. So it really comes down to, you know, as you and I know in the markets, right? Like, what's the new narrative, right? And we're constantly trying to figure out that narrative in the market. And for the past several months, it's been Argentina, it's been Ukraine and Russia, it's been the drought in the United States regarding the wheat crop. And now it's like shifting from Argentina to like what's going to happen with planting corn and grant and corn and soybeans in the United States. Is it going to be too dry? Is it going to be too wet? And what's that going to be like on the other side of the world? You know, is Ukraine going to finish their harvest? Is Ukraine going to be able to not worry about having to plant their acres, right? Worrying about land disputes, etc. So it's kind of just like, you know, you're trying to figure out what the next theme and narrative is of the market. And good traders will understand that like by the time Oh, you're trading it. It's on the front page of like the Economist or Newsweek, right? It's over. That theme's done, right? And and you know, it's funny. I kind of mentioned the whole thing with the eggs, right? All the memes came out about egg prices in the United States, right? You go look in the data. We've already like dropped. What was it? Five, ten percent on egg prices in the spot market. So it's it's kind of funny how all that works. How it all kind of plays out. Yeah, that, that reminds me a little bit of. Um, I want to say it was back in oh, five or six, but you're you're closer. You probably know the dates when like low carb Atkins type diets were all the rage and (laughs) 
Calmine, right? The egg producer, their stock went up like, I don't know, some stupid percentage because everyone was under the assumption that everyone would be on low-carb diet, so eggs would be having tremendous demand, right, for that. And, you know, the moment, to your point, I remember that myself back then, it's like the moment that was in the financial media and it was such a hype around it, that was when Calmine started to have its own bear market, right? So it's <laughs> similar with the dollar wrecking ball, right? How many magazine covers do we see about the dollar wrecking ball and now the dollar's getting wrecked, right? After Absolutely. It's already known. So, so I, I like that point about you have to kind of figure out where the, where the next narrative is going to be. So it seems to me that from a geopolitical front, there's maybe two narratives that are still to come. One is whatever happens with the reopening on China. And then two is what if war things don't escalate with Russia, Ukraine? What if actually there is a, a ceasefire or some kind of deal that's brokered, which I know nobody wants to even consider as a possibility. Admittedly, it's low, but you never know, right? That could have big implications because nobody sees that coming. How do you think through those two dynamics, China reopening and and kind of surprises on the Russia-Ukraine side. Well, as far as the ag markets go, right? You know, if there would be a peace treaty, for example, brokered between Russia and Ukraine, and they're friendly when it comes down to land disputes and try to work it out, well, then, you know, you might have farmers will go plant as many acres as possible, take advantage of these prices, right? And essentially, you might kind of just slam this market down pretty good here. But the other side of it is demand side, right? Coming out of China, right? They've been kind of absent on a lot of commodities, right? They've also switched their buying interest. They've, buy, they've been buying a lot more Brazilian corn than the U.S. But when it comes down to, you know, in general, that demand, like if that happens and they open up fully, you know, they will come back to the U.S. They have to. It's, you know, there's over a billion people there. You can't have food security issues. And they'll come to the U.S. market. I mean, we trade with them. We're like one of the biggest trading partners with soybeans, for example. We've traded boatloads of corn literally with them in the past and wheat. And they know us. We know them. And, you know, the world's got to eat, basically. So two different things, right? So you're talking the demand side problem and or demand side issue. And the Russia-Ukraine thing is more of a supply side issue. But at the, at, at the end of the day, right, all this kind of hinges upon one thing, right? As you and I know, right? This whole debacle, what happened with you know grain prices this past year, and the same thing with eggs, is that these prices are so high, right? And as you and I know, what we do in these situations, right, you start trying to figure out like, well, hey, how can I boost my margins, right? Farmers are doing this. They're thinking about like, hey, like, what if I just plant more corn? Like, how about I take some acres out of whatever, soybeans or wheat or whatever, and plant the most profitable crop, right? And not just in the United States, It'll happen in other parts of the world. So really, you know, the cure for higher prices is higher prices, right? And that's just the market turning, turning what it needs, making what needs to happen in the market to kind of settle everything down, right? And you will see those acreage responses like we already are, you know, India is going to be planting more wheat. The U.S. is planting more wheat. And in general, you are starting to see these, like, these responses to the market play out. I haven't tracked this since the headlines first came out when earlier in, in last year, but has there been an easing of some of these different countries that were restricting exports as concerns were were there? I think you had it from India. I think Egypt also started doing some wheat export restrictions. Anything that's going on there that's been different that's not making use? I haven't heard about that recently, right? Because, I mean, those things were a, were a problem, right? First off, it was like India's going to start exporting, right? And all of a sudden, wait, the Indian crop is not there. They're not going to start exporting. They're going to start putting export controls, right? 
other countries are doing the same thing, right? It's it's changed though a little bit here. I haven't heard about it as much as other other areas, right? You know, thankfully we're in the United States, we don't have to worry about those kind of export limitations, right? But other places of the world do have that. But I haven't heard so much about that. And even if it is, it's not making the headlines, right? We're we're not at all-time highs in corn or wheat or any of these commodities. And I mean, maybe you could say that about eggs, right? You might go to the grocery store and they might say like, wait, limit of one carton per family or something like that, right? But, you know, I don't I don't see anything beyond that at the moment. Do you, do you see that the prices are going to be coming down since you mentioned groceries, that our prices are going to start lowering? I think, uh, I think Biden was talking about possibility that you know food inflation is still there but it's coming down quite a bit maybe talk about some of the uh, trends that you're seeing on the commodity side and then what you've seen in terms of how long that actually filters through to what consumers see yeah so i mean you know when it comes down to like the the egg thing right we went through something similar like this like seven years ago right and i don't know if maybe your audience remembers this or not but we had this bird flu avian flu in the united states right and we had the same response right Cartons of eggs were like five, six dollars for a dozen, right? And what happened after that? You know, higher prices cured, or high prices cured high prices, basically. So basically, people started to expand their flocks, right? They took care of the margins and made it happen. As far as more food inflation, it's it's kind of weird, right? Because when you think about it, right, when it comes down to like what the ingredients are that go into all these food food products, right? You know, some things will go up and then drastically and then fall like a feather, right? But like some of these prices are kind of sticky at the grocery stores, right? So, you know, it's kind of like what I tell people, right? Like corn and soybeans, right? Because they're heavily on the on the industrial use kind of kind of um, a component, right? Where, you know, corn is used for ethanol, corn is used for all these other industries, right? But like wheat, when wheat is made into cereal, it's made into bread, et cetera, right? Like there is a limit where industrial demand can stop and not buy some of these commodities, right? In which case you might have processing facilities kind of like not not buy as much corn or not buy buy as much soybean oil because it doesn't make sense. It comes down to the consumer, it's a different story, right? You know, like if you go to the grocery store, right, and cereal for your kid is like five dollars carton or box or whatever. And then the next week is like, well, it's now it's eight dollars, like sorry. Like, you know, are you not going to buy that? Are you not going to buy food that you can eat, right? And this is like a, a trend where like the food commodities, right? Like wheat, rice, barley, et cetera, oats, like those have way more upside potential and they're more sticky when it comes down to pricing, right? And when it comes down to like the corn and all that, like at a certain price point, you know, the ethanol plants might shut down or or similar. So basically... It's unprofitable for them to do it, so prices will kind of gravitate lower, right? But some of these other commodities, they don't they don't really necessarily go down. Case in point, right? Like this year, I was like, and I'm famous for this on, on my post on Twitter, like I started going to Costco, right? I was just like observing prices, right? Like what was what was chicken at the beginning of the year, for like on a per, per pound basis? What was a gallon of milk? And I always went to like one aisle there, and it was soybean oil, right, at the retail level. And I'm not talking like the future side of it, but the retail level, right? And, you know, every single month for like three or four months, soybean oil just kind of kept on creeping up 2%, 5%, et cetera. And then it just like leveled off in June. And those of you are not familiar with soybean oil, soybean oil and other oils is pretty much like a main ingredient in U- U.S. food, basically, right? 
So if you're going to Chick-fil-A or some of these other restaurants, you're going to be using some sort of vegetable oil. And, you know, if it's not soybean oil, it's peanut oil. If it's not peanut oil, it's something else, right? But regardless, like soybean oil is like your best benchmark because it's the most liquid futures contract out there when it comes down to the oils. So I saw that in June, right? And I was like, wait a minute. Like I kept on going back after that. And there was, it just did not go down in price after that. And then by the end of the year, it started coming off in price. So, you know, I thought to myself, like maybe, maybe for the past six months up until like August or September, like the inflation that we saw at restaurants, you know, food services, et cetera, and at the grocery store, it kind of leveled off. And honestly, to me, like I'm, you and me are probably like more about price. We, we pay attention to this more, but I go weekly to the grocery store and I see this and like, you know, my grocery bill hasn't like moved in the past three or four months. So I think we're kind of done with that, to be honest with you. But I don't, I don't think at the same time, right? Buying chicken at $4 a pound three months ago, well, you're not going to be buying chicken at $2 a pound anytime soon. But it might drop 10 20%. And it did already, at least in my case where I live. Yeah. I mean, there is data out there right now from the Energy Information Administration, or EIA for short. The build-out is there. I think last I saw, gosh, it was... Um, I have to look at my notes here, but I thought it was about 2 billion gallons is what we have right now. And I think it might go up to like 5 billion gallons, if I'm not mistaken. So basically, like when I when I did the math, I think it was like 150% increase in gallons produced in the next three years, right? And in which case, he made a good, good point on this, is that, you know, one thing that has changed in the agricultural space right now is similar to what happened like 15 years ago. And that's basically that soybean oil is a huge component in making renewable diesel and biodiesel. But, you know, with that being said, if soybean oil goes up, it's kind of competing with other other commodities in the food supply chain, right? So if you're using soybean oil to fuel your, you know, F-150 diesel truck, well, then the food industry has to compete with those prices to get that to go into the food supply chain. So to Sal's point, you know, that is a huge driver right now. And it's kind of a step change in the market, similar to what we saw in corn when the renewable fuel standard came out about 17 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, you probably know this too. It's like if you took a gallon of or 10 pounds of soybean oil and convert it into renewable diesel, right? Well, there's no limit to how much renewable diesel can go into your diesel tank when it comes down to ethanol, right? You don't have a, you have a limit what your auto manufacturer warranty will like allow, right? So most ethanol in the United States, or most gasoline in the United States comes with 10% ethanol, right? So basically 10% of your gas tank is basically from corn, right? Whereas on the renewable diesel front, if you want 99% renewable diesel in your diesel tank, you can do that. So there are two different things. It just really depends what carbon pricing is and does it incentivize new facilities to come online or not. Let me just reset the room for everybody here for the remaining minutes. Everybody, please make sure you check out Grain Stats. I know um, Grain Stats, you've got a, a course you want to talk about that you are doing on the trading side. We'll touch on that. Again, this will be podcast on all your favorite platforms. Let's talk about how do you even get involved uh, being a grain trader? Because I'm pretty sure you can't do that from the Robinhood app. <laughs> So how do you even get started? I mean, you talk about your background from the futures market side, but uh, you know, if if somebody's brand new to trading and investing in finance, it's kind of an intriguing area to play with. What do you What do you do? Oh yeah. So 
it's completely different than anything you would probably do in Chicago or New York, right? You know, typically in the New York side, right, you probably become an analyst at some point, you become a junior trader, and then you're trading financial futures, you're trading stocks, you're trading bonds, et cetera, right? Similar to Chicago, same way. When it comes down to the future side and the cash side in grains, they're totally different things, right? On the future side, right, I mean, you can go those routes of becoming an analyst, et cetera, but you're only going to be trading the financial side. The physical side is completely different in the fact that, you know, most of those guys that have traded commodities, physical commodities, they started off in middle of nowhere, Kansas, Iowa, et cetera, merchandising the actual good, right? So a lot of these programs that like Louis Dreyfus, et cetera, they will take you and kind of rotate you between different regions, right? And some of the best traders end up getting off those desks and going to their corporate locations and saying, and, and being able to trade the financial futures and trade them from a basis standpoint using the, the information that those companies are keep tight, I would say, like a Bungie, a Dreyfus, a, you know, a Cargill or ADM, and basically just going that route of financial futures. But some people don't want to do that, right? Some people just rather just be a cash trader. And cash trading is completely different, right? Like the financial side, right? They're in, they're out. You know, you you buy a position, you sell a position, you're out. In a cash position, you buy the position, and they're gonna have to find a home for it. But when you when you're ready to like you know take delivery of that buy and you're ready to deliver it, you have to do all of the paperwork and all of the logistics in the middle. It's not just a buy and sell. And I think that's what is kind of off putting for a lot of people. At first, it's the regional thing, right? A lot of traders don't want to go to, you know, Iowa, middle of middle of Illinois, et cetera, and learn these markets or go to Omaha, Kansas City. And they would rather just be sitting anywhere in the world, a major city, and just trading corn in their pajamas, right? It doesn't it doesn't work like that. So really you have to kind of come from like a Midwest kind of background to, you know, to get started. Doesn't mean you have to stay there, but you take what you learned there from the physical side of trading, you know, learning barges, learning the railroads, learning trucks, learning how to buy from people. You have to be calling farmers or you need to be selling to people. So getting those established relationships with end users is huge, right? And some people can pull it off. Some people can't. It just really depends. But a lot of the best traders I ever met in the grain markets, they all started off physical. And that was literally for the past 10, 15 years, picking the phone call, Calling a farmer or calling another co-op, you know, an elevator, a co-op elevator, buying their grain, putting the contracts down and doing all of the logistics work in between there. That's why, like, you know, unfortunately, like the grain traders I met end up all over the place and like they're really, really sharp. But I've met like some commodity traders that never did any of that, scheduling a grain barge or scheduling a train or what have you. Like they never did any of that. And there's a lot of gaps missing. So it's kind of interesting how like the grain side is like very granular, literally, and very precise versus the other side where, you know, energy desk, right? You'll have a scheduler out there scheduling barges, trucks, just like you would on, on the grain side. But, you know, a lot of those traders didn't have to do that that long and they don't get to see the whole picture. So two different things, I would say. Which is interesting, right? Because then presumably you can get a real informational edge to, to profit off of. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's why, right? Like if you're working at like one of these very vertically integrated companies like Cargill, right? They have all the data, right? So all of these companies 
have kind of like an internal hedge fund that uses all the internal data and trades off of that. So they can use that to their advantage just for that extra edge, extra alpha in the market. And it's, you know, that's why they're A, B, C, D, right? ADM, Bungie, Cargill, Dreyfus, you know, those are the big ones, right? And they're always going to be able to out-trade your average person in these markets, right? But the market's the market. They could be wrong too. That That's a different dynamic. But if they're playing the game, they they hold more cards. How does um, trading grains differ during economic recessions versus expansion? So Tupriam has put a lot of research on this that, yeah, they tend to be either down less or up when equities are down. When you're in recessions, obviously people still need to eat. In terms of what you're doing when you're trading these markets, is there any sort of different playbook that you you use depending upon the economic environment? Oh yeah, like you know, we've been kind of blessed here recently with basically inverted markets, right? Where the future price right now in the most current month, let's just say March, is higher than the price of May which is the next month, right? Next futures month, that's typical in the grain markets, right? If that spread is positive, you know, take the first month minus the second month, and that spread is positive, that's an inverted market. The opposite is basically a, um, a carry market, right? Where the nearby future spread compared to the second month's future is negative, then that's a carry market. Inverses are way easier to trade because you're, you can be in and out of the market from a financial side versus a carry side where you know, the people that really can clean up are the guys that own assets, right? The guys that own assets are the ABCDs and you're, you can't outsmart them, right? Because they can trade the stuff, the volatilities, they can trade the physical, they can essentially not, I shouldn't say manipulate, but they can have, they can push the market in their favor a little bit more because they kind of control the, the supply chain to a degree, right? So if you have that, it's a lot harder to trade against them. And when volatility in grains dies, that's when people in the grain trade just like leave. And a similar event happened, right? Michael, you probably remember this in, in 2012. We had this like insane drought in the United States, right? And, you know, corn prices went up to eight, you know, and it, long story short, right? Like everybody's like, yeah, you know, this is like great grain markets. Everybody's expanding their teams. Volatility is good. All the prop shops are doing pretty pretty well. You know, all the cash grain trading companies are doing pretty well. And then a year after that, it was still okay. But then it was like a five-year bear market, right? And basically what happened in 2012 was, you know, we had this huge drought here and that incentivized acres in South America. And then basically South America flooded the world and became, for example, like they outsmart, they outdid us on soybean exports. And now they're the number one exporter of the world on soybeans, right? So they took that away from us. They changed the market. You know, the market, the structure of the market has changed. And basically we were like in a five-year bear market. And every other year I had colleagues and friends that would just leave the market completely because they couldn't make money. And, you know, fortunate for me, I was on the physical side. I didn't have to worry about it because at least I was trained physical. But when it came down to the financial guys, you'd hear about this fund's shutting down, this trader's like moving on into energy or something. But there is a different playbook when it comes down to low prices and high prices. And we've been blessed for the past few years. We have a high price market. And in general, it's a lot more volatile than it was for the past five years before that. So there is different playbooks. Risk management is key. Don't get liquidated. You know, don't come home losing your futures account. Like there's things you have to worry about every single day when it comes down to that. But 
right now. Just try the volatility. Technicals right now are beautiful. Um, there's a story in the market everywhere. If it's feast or famine, right? We're talking about Argentina having like a 30-year drought or whatever. But flip side, people don't understand Russia had a record wheat harvest. Australia had a record wheat harvest. But, you know, the bad outpaces the good when it comes down to the news. So there's a lot of movement and activity. And at Sal's point, there's also a little bit of a structural change in the market going on when it comes down to soybeans and soybean oil. Because with this push into low-carbon fuels, Inflation Reduction Act, right, and what the Environmental Protection Agency is doing, right, they're incentivizing basically more and more soybean oil and waste oils to basically go into this U.S. fuel supply chain. And what that means is that you're going to get more agricultural products in your gasoline and diesel pools. So it's to go back to your, to your, to your question, you just have to change with the market, right? And right now the market's telling you like, hey, this is a little bit, the, the balance sheets are going to be a little bit tighter. They're not going to go away anytime soon. And, you know, there's looming risks all over the place, right? If it's Russia, if it's this Argentine drought, it's China opening up, it's a monster crop in Brazil, but you have to be in tune with everything all at once. And that's, that's the job of the trader, right? And that's, that's why we're here. So I find interesting, you mentioned technicals, and I see on your feet, obviously, you have support, resistance, and, you know, some technical things that you put out. But at the same time, there's a lot of fundamentals that you're also keeping in the back of your mind. So well, how do you, what do you deal with? How do you, I guess the question is, where do you sort of focus if there's a disconnect between what you're seeing on the technicals and well, you yourself know, because technicals can be fraught with noise also. And to your point, right, it's it's more of a nuanced uh, information flow than what you see on CBC for stocks. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I mean, it, com- it comes down to like the fundamentals, right? Like what I see in the fundamentals, right? Like every good grain analyst out there, right? Will have their own kind of balance sheet, right? And they're going to be trying to figure out, hey, what's what's the imports for this balance sheet? What are the exports? You know, what's the demand? You know, what's going to happen in Ukraine, right? And everybody kind of builds this mental model and they kind of put that model into their balance sheet and trying to figure out what the supply and demand is, right? But, you know, sometimes that doesn't agree with what the technicals are telling you, right? And sometimes what happens, as you and I know, is that other markets will impact your market. And you might just be like, whoa, 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 like grains are super, super bullish, right? And like, why, why, why is it just like going down on the day? And then you go look up, go to like finance.google.com and you're like, whoa, why is like the NASDAQ down 5% on the day, right? And, you know, that can just blow your your supply and demand model out. And which case, you should really be looking at the technicals, right? So in my opinion, like on day-to-day stuff, like I think it's important to have both. Some people will just write off technicals completely and some people will write off fundamentals completely. Two different things, right? I think the way to play it though, if you're going to be good, is take it, absorb as much information as you can 
and utilize that as best as you can. So I would trade with the fundamental mindset, but I would listen to the technicals because if something's changing in the market, you have to be you have to be aware and you have to know when you're going to get stopped out of your position because you know if all of a sudden China doesn't open and you were planning on them, you know, the demand coming from them and you know prices are going down, well, you just invalidated your model and technicals probably would have saved you. So I think it's a good balance and good traders know that. So it's a heavy discussion though, because I know some people, right, that won't use a lot of fundamental drivers, right? And I'm not talking just like they'll use S and D's supply and demand models, right? But they might not want use one report, right? Which is like, what are the funds doing, right? The the financial futures trading funds, right? And that's like one report that the Commodity Futures Trading Commission puts out on a weekly basis. But basically, like that kind of tells you like what the funds are thinking and where they're placing bets. And that is important to know because those guys can really move the market, right? A guy with a Thinkorswim account sitting in his pajamas at home, he's not going to move the market, right? But, you know, a big fund comes in and, you know, decides to start buying soybean oil because, hey, there's a reason to be buying it or there's drought in Argentina or whatever, right? Like they can stop that guy out any single day, you know? And sometimes they have a minimum risk they have to take every single day. So... It just depends, I guess you could say. The other kind of interesting trends that are starting to emerge that are getting your attention here, Grain Sats, I mean, talk about soybeans, talk about corn, uh, you know, is there anything that's, that's not getting much attention that would, you think, maybe be a future headline? Like, like I said, I, I think the big big thing, big picture right now is what's going to happen with corn and when, when it comes down to the exports here in the next couple of months. You know, as I mentioned, Brazil switching to a soybean program. Argentina is going to be priced out of the market with the drought that they're having. Ukraine is kind of like the wild card, I'd say. Like, if there's Russian aggression, what happens to the export program there? Because, you know, if that's the case, right, like people are just going to go buy US corn, right? And no one's talking about that right now, which is kind of weird. But, you know, I asked this question a couple of days ago and people were kind of alluding to the fact, like, hey, I asked the community, I said, hey, like, hey, what, what am I missing here? Because some of the stuff is already priced in, we're done, right? And actually, one thing that I didn't really think about because I, I'm not paying attention so much to the physical side of the business is like, what is the impact of like higher interest rates, right? Because we've been blessed with low interest rates for so long that people were basically able to trade stuff without paying too much to trade it, right? On the physical side, right? So when you trade a physical position, right, you have to put the money up, like up, up front, basically, right? Like you have to pay, you have to take your bank buy this cargo, you know, this ocean-going vessel, for example, or this train, you actually have to put that money up. And basically, when interest rates were, you know, if LIBOR was like 11 basis points, and now it's, I don't know, four base, 400 basis points, right? That financing cost on those trades just exploded, right? So basically, a lot of people that were trading grains, right? They were expecting, you know, really thin margins back then. And now they have to expect bigger margins to make their business flow. And that's, that's kind of like a hard pill to swallow possibly, right? Like what might happen to some of these guys that are not well capitalized that can't get cheaper credit, right? It's kind of like your average consumer, right? Like once they get tapped out, what happens? Like, do they go bankrupt? Like it's the same kind of concept, right? And, you know, the well capitalized players know like save for a rainy day, right? Just like your average household, like save for a rainy day. You never know what may happen. But these people like have to be making sure that they're extracting as much margin out of this, right? 
And when you have interest rates and financing costs go up and up and up, like, and you can't take that margin out of the business, like that becomes a problem. And, you know, when it comes down to farmers, right, that's the same thing that might happen to them, right? Like, as interest rates go up, like they have to pay more for every, all their inputs, all their financing costs. These, these tractors are not cheap. They're $300,000, $400,000, right? Record land prices are happening right now in the state of Iowa. And basically, like everything is shifting up and you're kind of seeing that inflation kind of in that sphere in agriculture. So, you know, so what happens when prices go down, but interest rates stay high? And that could be an issue coming up here. But I think we're not there. I think it's kind of just hitting the commodity handlers, the storage companies, the railroads, et cetera. But, you know, that's that's there. But it's not come to the farm yet. But I think a lot of people are a little bit worried about it. They're just not talking about it. And, and this is more just a, a more of a sort of interesting question for me. But what when it comes to farm equipment and making farms more efficient, is there sort of an average duration or you know length of time that that these loans tend to be taken out for for these improvements on the farms or or equipment purchases i'm I'm only because it's you know because as the curve gets more inverted right the the longer you are in time the lower that interest expense is so it might have other implications on you know on on the whole margin side of things i guess it's kind of where i'm going with it definitely definitely i understand but yeah that's not not my wheelhouse you know like there's there's better guys out there for that for sure Maybe for the remaining few minutes, and again, everybody here, please make sure you follow uh, Green Stats. Talk about this uh, this course that you're doing. I'm going to make the assumption that it's specialized. You've got to get the right kind of person interested uh, because it's not meme-ish, but you're trying to use memes to get people interested right, in the <laughs> space. Right? So just talk about what made you want to put this kind of course together and what's been the reception like. Yeah, so you know, we do a lot of high-level stuff, right? And we've noticed, you know, our Telegram feed, our Twitter, we were a lot more analytical back then, right? But when it comes down to like gaining followers, getting more people interested in the markets, right? Like people don't care about that as much, right? The, the, the hardcore enthusiasts, the traders, the hedge funds, et cetera, they do. And, you know, they were our first followers, right? Like there's tons of hedge funds like following us, right? It's kind of weird, but it is what it is. And, you know, they contacted us and they said, oh yeah, this stuff is awesome, right? Uh, but then, you know, your average person, you know, that's interested in these markets, right? It's like, wait, what the heck? What the hell is this report that you're putting out? Like, I don't, I don't understand ethanol. I don't understand, you know, exports. Like, break it down, right? So that was one motivation, right? And the second motivation was like, yeah, we're, we're on Twitter every single day. People send me stuff. People like, you know, send memes, whatever, right? And like, some people like don't get it too at the same time, right? Like, we've seen people like misspeak about certain topics, right? They get inspections confused with sales reports, like, and, you know, like, I don't know if, if, if they get it right. And sometimes, you know, going, coming from like a commercial background back in the day, like everybody in the room understands what grain is and how it trades, et cetera. Right. But like your average person doesn't. And we wanted to change that to a degree where like, Hey, your average person might, might be interested in this stuff, but they don't understand it like hundred percent. But they don't need to understand 100%, but they need to kind of like understand a few things just to kind of get the ball rolling. So we decided to kind of go back just to the fundamentals, right? And we're not talking like academic stuff. We're talking like, hey, like this is where corn is grown. This is where it goes. This is like the players, you know, it's farmers, brokers, traders, et cetera. And just kind of building these building blocks out for like 
people that want to be interested, want to learn more about where the, where the stuff comes from, how it impacts them on a daily basis, if it does, right? And just kind of build that out, right? But, you know, focus it towards like people that want to get into trading, right? And you're kind of killing two birds with one stone when you do this, because like the, the people that are inexperienced, they want to know this stuff, right? They're sitting in New York, they're sitting in California, so far away from the, the Midwest grain belt that they're interested so much into it, but they don't know where to start, right? Like, hey, like, I'll be honest with you, I did the same thing, right? When I decided why well, I want to go in the grain and grain and agriculture, right? Like 10, 15 years ago, you know, first thing, www.google.com. And like, I like looked up grain trading, you'd find your Chicago Mercantile Exchange or Chicago Board of Trade website, you just see the futures. But then like, you'd come up on a few magazines, right? And like, those things, those resources were just not good, right? And then on top of that, then you find the USDA, which is an amazing resource. But it's like reading an encyclopedia, like you need to know what you want to find when you when you read that. So we wanted to kind of avoid all of that. And just kind of go back to the basic building blocks and say like, hey, like, this is how this stuff works. This is how corn works. This is how wheat works. And, you know, this is the modern agricultural supply chain. And Michael, you probably remember this, but you remember that scene in The Matrix, right? Where like the guy pulls up that monitor, right? And there's always like green like letters falling down the screen, right? And like, I guess I forget the Keanu's character. He's like, what is this? You know, he doesn't understand it, right? And, you know, the other guy's like, well, it's just matrix. Like, you have to, like, get into it and learn it, right? He's like, oh. He's, and he's, like, looking at the screen. He's like, these characters, this jumbled up garbage is, like, falling on the screen. And you don't see what it is. He's like, you know, that's a cat. That's a dress or whatever. And when you're involved in the commodity markets, right, you'll get to understand that stuff. It's kind of like you open up a trading term on the first time. What are all these symbols, right? All right. I'll tell you what, folks. We'll, uh, we'll wrap this up on uh, at this top of the hour here. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Special thanks to Green Stats. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.